there is something about setting crime mystery books on the margins, on the edges, because that's where, that's the sort of characters that I enjoy writing about. I'm Michael Tamlin, CEO of the global ebook store Rakuten Kobo. We have a regular procession of authors who visit the Kobo offices, and while they're here, I get a chance to learn a bit about their careers, creative process, and their reading and writing lives. And hopefully you will too. Welcome to Kobo in Conversation. My guest today is Anne Cleves. Anne's career as a crime novelist spans more than three decades and more than 30 books. She has given us iconic characters such as Vera Stanhope and Inspector Ramsey and has made the settings for murder and investigation iconic in her Shetland Island series. Her books have been adapted for television in the series Vera and Shetland, and we're here to talk about a new series, the Two Rivers series, starting with her latest book, The Long Call. Anne Cleves, welcome to Kobo. It's lovely to be here. You have written somewhere around 35 books in the last 33 years, if, yeah. if my count is, is correct. About one a year, certainly, yes. I have to assume that if you've done 35 of anything, the experience of doing that changes a lot. Can you tell me about the difference between writing your first book, A Bird in the Hand, in kind of the mid-1980s, and your latest book, The Long Call, published this year? The first book was written while I was living on a tiny tidal island. My husband was the nature reserve warden there. Nobody else was living there. There was no mains water, no mains electricity. And if you're not into birds, and I'm really not, there's not a lot else to do. So it was a great place to start writing. And it's not coincidental that in my first murder mystery, I kill off a bird watcher by <laughs> hitting him over the head with a very heavy brass telescope. I think that saved our marriage. And now I'm more established, I guess, because I was 20 years of writing without any commercial success. I, mean, I was published one, one book a year with a mainstream publisher and they went into libraries. Very few went into bookstores. I did it because it was fun and it's still fun, and I'm very grateful that it happens that way. So I don't write any differently. I sit at my kitchen table, often in my pajamas, drinking lots of tea, and I make up stories, I tell stories, and I'm still doing that. You grew up in Hertfordshire, and, yeah. and then moved to North Devon, where the long call is set. If I asked you to describe North Devon, what images come to mind? Sunshine, beaches, friendship. I loved it. It was like suddenly the world was in technicolour after it had been in black and white. I just had such a good time there, made very intense friends, loved the beaches and the... And then as I grew up, I was uh, a teenager in the late 60s, early 70s. It was, so it was still the end of hippiedom. It was parties on the beach guitar, music. And there was a bit of an enclave for that there in the 60s in a way, wasn't there? I think it was very much a, a place where people came on holiday. Mm -hmm. Surfing was just starting, so it wasn't the commercial, really expensive surfboard, proper gear type surfing. It was a few chilled people coming just to enjoy the beach. And that makes it sound 
very idyllic, but that's how I remember it. I loved high school. I loved reading new books, learning languages, but mostly it was about those very close, very intense friendships that I still have. Still, my, my, one of my best friends is someone I met when I was 11 at that school. And still are connected to today. Yes, and she still lives in Barnstable, and I go down and stay with her still. Tell me about some of those formative books from your childhood. I always loved mysteries, and I loved kids being let out without adult supervision. Which is a theme in the child mysteries. It it's is. it's of very rare. It it's very rarely let's go and solve this mystery and I'll bring my parent along. Right. <laughs> it's so almost it all. was, I was an Enid Blyton child. I soon realized she wasn't a brilliant writer and I moved on to other people. But Swallows and Amazons by Arthur Ransom, Kids Out, Having Adventures. I remember to, and I can't remember who wrote it, it was a German author called Emilie and the Detectives. And that was a bunch of kids in Berlin, between the wars, I think, solving a crime. And that was my first experience of translated fiction. And I love that and I still love translated fiction because it's that voyeurism in you that helps you get a sneaky peek into another culture's preoccupations. And more importantly, I think they're domestic lives. Mm -hmm. You are also a fan of McHeron. I love McHeron. He is a relatively new author and I think only not terribly well known here in in Canada, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but I think he's just brilliant. So if you've not read him, read him. He does spy novels, but they're funny and they're moving, and he's just a very very good writer. If you like John Le Carré, Mick is Le Carré on speed. <laughs> so less the slow unfolding and more the very fast unfolding. Very fast, but also very compassionate in the same way that Le Carre is. Mm -hmm. He has very flawed spies and they're all gathered together in one house. The, the spies who have cocked up or made dreadful mistakes but they can't sack them because they know too much. <laughs> they're all in this house called Slough House minded by this grotesque figure Jackson Lamb. So, yeah, oh I have very, to go and read them. Oh then. you should read them they are so good. What place did books have in your family? Oh, my parents were great readers, but not book owners. Mm -hmm. So it would be the, the weekly trip to the library and we would all borrow books. I still remember those trips going. And, and when I was in my child mystery phase, I would go and I don't remember the name of my teachers at that age, but I remember Mrs. Gregory in the library who would know, knew just what I liked to read and she would put them be under the counter for me and I'd go in and she'd pull it out a magician pulling a rabbit out of a hat. And it was such a treat. And you, you've kept that connection to public libraries throughout yes. your career. Yes. And you worked as a reader in residence. I did. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, I was reader in residence. We had a national year of reading in, I think, 99, but even before that. So I was based with two library authorities and I guess you would call me a reader development librarian now. So I would set up reading groups, try and pull teens in, set up family reading groups so parents and kids could read the same books and then discuss them. I set up um, a young writers group for teens. Then we wrote fan fiction and the kids could just try their hand at all sorts of stuff. I, that was when I first wrote a, 
a murder mystery that could be done in public libraries. So it was set in a public library. And since I wrote it for Gateshead Libraries in Northeast England, it's gone viral and libraries all over the world are using this. It's a way of, a fun way of pulling in uh, readers, people who might be new to the library and bring them in for a murder mystery evening. I know it's a broad question, but how have you seen the roles of libraries evolving you know, from 20 or 30 years ago to today? I think they're much more important now than they ever were. In this time of fake news, we need somewhere where truth can be kept. And libraries have an important role in doing that. Reference librarians know about stuff in a way that lots of us don't and lots of news media don't. So I think we need that, we need that space where, where facts, which are considered important, should be kept safe. I think it's also a place where, at a time when, certainly in the, the UK and the US, we're splitting into more and more polarised arguments. It's a place where people with different views and opinions can come together and talk about stuff in a civilised manner. And it might just be talking about a bit of fiction that we've read, but mm -hmm. we can come and we can discuss. And it's also a place where people who can't afford to buy books have access to narrative, to story, and that makes us more empathetic, it makes us more civilised. If we can see the world through another person's eyes, through our fiction, then that will solve lots of the problems that we have at the moment, I think. And libraries have come under a lot of pressure in the UK, yes. especially in the past decade. So do you see that role as being under threat right now? Yes, and I fight every time I'm speaking in public. I have a minor rant about public libraries because, for instance, in the UK, the creative industries generate eight million pounds an hour for the country. Where does creativity start? It starts with an understanding of narrative, how stories are framed, about rhyme, about illustration, about image. All that starts off with kids being able to read. And there's it's another fact for you. Reading for pleasure is a higher indication of academic success in a child than parental income or status. Mm -hmm. We cannot claim to be an equal society if we don't give everybody access to that ability to read for pleasure. I'm sorry, my, my political rant is over Oh, no, <laughs> it's, a, it's a very good one. With that, that librarian who you mentioned before, was part of her role to push you into books that you didn't know that you would be interested in or to kind of push you beyond your, yeah. your zone of comfort? And that's what a qualified children's librarian can do, I think. Yeah, you like these, if you like this one, why don't you try this one? And just, uh, but you need to know the, the fiction mm -hmm. or, the, or the reference books before you can do that. You need to have an understanding of what you have on your shelves. And that's why, great that we have volunteer-led libraries in some of our communities, but it is no substitute for a qualified librarian. It's one of the things that we struggle with here and that, you know, that I struggle with as a bookseller is that as a recommendation becomes more algorithmic, it becomes better and better at giving you more of the same. But not, why don't you stretch and That's try right. this? This will give you a different perspective on that subject. Mm -hmm. Or, you have never read 
a Russian author. How is it that you've never just, read this? Yeah. Just give it mm -hmm. a go. It's not as off-putting or as daunting as you think it might be. When did the idea of being an author rather than a reader occur to you? I think I've always been an author. I think I've always been a, I've always been someone on the outside looking in, certainly. Mm -hmm. From the age of about three, before I could read and write, I can remember running a narrative in my head in the third person, explaining what I was doing to myself. That sense of looking in from the outside. And then before we moved to Devon, we were living in these little villages in Herefordshire, right on the Welsh border. My dad was a village school teacher. And that was tricky. If you're in a very tiny school, being the teacher's kid is not an easy role to play. I've done it myself. Yes. <laughs> 30 kids in the school, your dad's teaching, it's not the easiest. So again, there I was watching what other people were doing rather than being allowed to join in too much. And I think I was always making sense of the world by, by turning it into story. So you, you set the stage for the writing of your first book on the tidal island. Yes. With the bird watcher and the telescope in the library. Um, <laughs> yeah. Tell me a bit about how the momentum gathered for writing that first book. I suddenly I had a story to tell, I suppose. And I, I'd been reading lots and lots of golden age fiction at that time. My comfort reading was always to go back to the books that were written in the UK between the war. Not so much Christie, because I think she's really cold and cruel. She's heavily into revenge and she kills off schoolgirls. You know, I'm not, not a huge Christie fan, but Dorothy Sayers, Marjorie Alley, Naya Marsh, those mm -hmm. sorts of. And I suppose I thought that's what crime fiction, and, and so the first series is very much in that vein of an amateur sleuth who falls over bodies on nature reserves or islands or shores. So it, they were using the experience that I had of living with my husband and the bird watching world, but also that within that golden age tradition. And it was only later that reading people like John Harvey, Ian Rankin, oh, so I can write about people like me. They don't have to be posh amateur sleuths. Mm -hmm. So that's how it developed, I think. You have, in the course of your writing, often had two series on the go at the same time. You know, in the 1980s and 1990s, it was the Palmer Jones books and the Inspector Ramsey series. And then you juggled Vera Stanhope and the Shetland Island books. Do you find it better or interesting as an author to be able to shift characters and settings like that as you're going from book to book? Yeah, I really enjoy doing that, which is why really I, I'm still good to write Vera books, but I'll, I've stopped writing about Shetland, so I wanted somewhere else to write about. It's getting to the end of a book and thinking, now I can go somewhere different. Mm -hmm. And it's the place again, really. So when I was writing Vera and Shetland, okay, I've just finished a book set where I live with Vera. Now I can let my imagination go north up to Shetland and I can take a trip there and I can get inside a different character's head. You tend not to set your stories in big cities. No. You prefer smaller places, you prefer little towns, more intimate settings, sometimes in the case of Shetland Islands, very small places. Very small. <laughs> what draws you to settings like that? I think because they're the places that I know. I've never really mm -hmm. lived in a so I lived in, a, in London for about six months and didn't enjoy it. So it's, it's where I know. And I also, there is something about setting crime mystery books on the margins, on the edges, because that's where, that's the sort of characters that I enjoy writing about. 
so that works quite well. What drew you back to North Devon? I knew that I wanted to write something different. I'd done eight books set in Shetland. There are only 23,000 people living in all the Shetland Islands. I couldn't kill off anybody well, else. I, I was going to say, after eight books, you start to run out of people. <laughs> yes. So I knew that I was looking for somewhere else, and I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And then uh, my husband died very suddenly. We'd been, I met him in Shetland. I met him in Fair Isle. We'd been married for more than 40 years, had so many adventures together. And I wanted to run away. We, I live in northeast England, in Northumberland, where the Vera books are set. And I wanted to get away from the memories, but from other people's sympathy, really. I, I, I needed to be on my own for a bit. And where I ran to was North Devon, to stay with that very good friend that I met when I was 11. And just talking to her about the times that we had, and then driving round and walking on empty beaches, because it was the winter. and remembering some of those wonderful times it occurred to me that this would be a, could be a place where I could set a new series. People think of Devon as being cream teas and thatch cottages and very cosy and and that bit of Devon isn't like that. It's a very mixed community. Ilfracombe is quite a tatty old seaside town and those guest houses that used to host families and those big Victorian hotels now have bedsits, they have hostels for homeless people, they're quite run down and you mix that with the kids that come to the coast, very wealthy kids who come to the coast for the surfing or quite arty people who move in to do, to paint or to sculpt or to blow glass or what and so it just seemed to me going back that this would be an ideal place to set a murder mystery. Tell me a bit about Detective Inspector Matthew then? Well, again, that came out of the conversation and, and talking to my friend again, because she grew up in quite a strict evangelical sect. And that's, again, part of the place. The Plymouth Brethren grew out of Devon. Because that's mm -hmm. why they're Plymouth. And she wasn't a part of that group. And it, but just talking about what it must have been like to be a part of that and still coming to school with us and going to parties with us. but living a different life at home. And so Matthew Venn is the only child of doting parents who belong to this sort of community. And at the age of 18, as many of us do, he started questioning the faith of his parents. But instead of quietly doing that and subtly, discreetly disengaging, as my friend did, he had a, almost and a moment of epiphany in a meeting in a dusty hall, stood up and in front of his parents and the whole community said, this is ridiculous, I can't believe any of this. And at that point, and this would really have happened, he was cast out, he was unfellowshipped, they call unfellowshipped. And so he went off to university without that background, without that faith. And I think his way of finding that community, that sense of duty and service, the possibility of justice and redemption came through joining the police force because that's what he found there. And the book starts with him. He also discovers that he's gay at that point um, because that's been something that he's had to repress as part of the community. And so he returns to North Devon 
surprised to find that he has a husband. He's joyous in this relationship. He doesn't quite believe that he, belie that, that he deserves that happiness. Mm -hmm. But comes back, his father has died. And the first scene is with him standing outside the, where the funeral's taking place, hearing voices that he recognizes, but not feeling that he would be welcome to go in. And maybe he would have been brave enough to make that step, but the phone rings and there's been a murder and he's called out to the crime scene and that's how it starts. And so the story begins. And begin. so the story begins. You've had a lot of jobs on your way to becoming an author and many of them show up in the long call. Yeah. Social work, childcare, cooking, being adjacent to bird observation. Yeah. Do you like that familiarity of knowing what a person's working life would be as you're writing them? I think I'm just lazy. I think you need to do it to understand it or you need to research it very well to understand it. So for me, it's easier to use experiences that I've already had because I think in books, it's the small detail that brings a scene or a character to life. Mm -hmm. And you might research on Google or you might talk to somebody, but if you haven't done it, you miss that tiny detail that just nails a character. So no, it's idleness really. If my research is correct, you once wrote ghost stories written to be read aloud. I, yeah, I wrote one and, and I'm quite proud of it. It's called Stranded and it's set on that tidal island. Yes, I belong to a lovely library in Newcastle, which is where I live, called the Lytton Phil. And they do this, this wonderful thing that in midwinter, the midwinter solstice and in midsummer, they ask three local writers and it might be a kids writer or it might be a very famous poet, Sean O'Brien, um, is part of this and um, we write a ghost story and we read it out. So it's called Phantoms at the Phil and yes I wrote a ghost story which I'm, yeah, I, I'm quite proud of that ghost story. And if you are writing something to be read aloud, does it end up being written differently than if it's on the page? I don't think it does okay. because I think that we read a book almost aloud in our head when we're reading it. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure that it does. And it was written from the point of view of a single young male, but I was with a strong Liverpudlian accent, and I don't fit in any of those, but I was still having to read it, so. Some authors read widely while writing, and some close down and try to keep the outside influences to a minimum. How do you approach that? I couldn't sleep at night if I didn't read, so I still read. I read. There is one author I won't read while I'm writing, and that's John Le Carre, because he has such a strong voice somehow. He has a very distinctive voice, and I can mm -hmm. feel it seeping into the narrative when I'm writing. And it's a voice, but also kind of a sense of pace and yes. development that yes. is very distinctive. It is. I think he's a great writer, so I wouldn't read him, but anybody else I will read. And I read lots of crime, and my reading passion, I think, is translated crime or translated fiction generally, but certainly translated crime. Which is in a great, you know, it is the golden age of translated oh, crime right it, now. I think it's brilliant. I've just been signing stock in an indigo and saw Fred Vargas was there. And I've loved Fred Vargas for years and years and years. And she's been like a hidden treasure. And it's great that suddenly she's being recognized, I think. Yeah, I think if you read another culture's popular fiction, as I said before, you get 
a sense of its preoccupations and, and also its. Po I knew that Scandinavia had this rather disturbing right wing underbelly long before. What's he called? Andre Breivik, the Norwegian, went onto that island and shoot those, shot those teenagers because I'd read Henning Mankell. Mm -hmm. And so you understand a bit of what's much more of what, what's going on in a country by reading its popular fiction, I think. Were there books that you were reading or books that were on your bedside table while you were writing The Long Call? I think there are lots of books. I think when I'm writing, my, for me, the master of crime fiction is Georges Simenon, who wrote literally a hundred novels, I think, lots and lots of novels. But his Maigret books are so clear and slender and precise. And with one sentence, he can describe a character, move the plot on, tell you how Maigret's feeling. And what I love about those books, I think what I carried through to the Matthew Venn books was Maigret's idea, and he always says, my role is to understand, not to judge. And I think that's what Matthew Venn is trying to do, too. Well, I certainly can't wait to see where Matthew Venn goes next, presumably in the same area, in the same region, on the same beaches, but there's a, there's a lot of both psychological and uh, and personal geography to travel for him, I think. So I, uh, think I cannot so. wait. Thank you very much. It's and been... thank you for joining us. Thank you. You can get links to the books mentioned in this episode and find previous episodes at www.kobo.com slash conversation. Be sure to give us a rating and a review on your favorite podcast source so people can find out how great this is. And also check out our sibling podcast, Kobo Writing Life, all about the nuts and bolts of life as an independent author. Thank you for listening.